1: Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 2055 450 NOAA. 255 450 6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about data privacy, data security, and best practices for owning local data. And one of the things that I have had to deal with is the fact that I can own data all day long, but at the end of the day, anytime I leave my house, all of a sudden I've left my trusted infrastructure and thus this creates a problem because I no longer have any place to store my local data. So there are a couple of choices, right? Obviously there are those of us that choose to host our own services. And so you could set up a C file instance. You could set up a Nextcloud instance. You could set up a own cloud instance. And I have done all of those things, with varying de- varying degrees of success, obviously my favorite being C file, I use it exclusively as a Dropbox replacement, but there is a problem for extremely sensitive files, or not even extremely sensitive files, but just personal things. I am uncomfortable with those files syncing around the Internet, and I don't care if it is a I don't care if it is a if there is all this encryption, I don't care if there's SSL. I just don't like the idea of something that I never want to be on the Internet sinking around on the Internet. And I finally found a solution. As always, though, your calls go to the front of the
2: line. Joey calls from Virginia. Hey,
1: Joey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Um, I'm trying to find out, have you ever used a, like a, basically a kiosk, like a self-serve kiosk, you know, like a point of sale terminal But, you know, just for somebody to, like, buy a ticket for an event, for Mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any recommendations on software?
1: Oh, I see. For setting one up, for hosting one.
2: Uh, Correct, yes. Okay. You know, like the equivalent of, like, WooCommerce, but it's intended for the customer to use.
1: Well, I tell you what, this is a little self-serving, but it is what it is, right? It's the best answer to the question. I guess it doesn't matter if it's self-serving. Ours, our software, it's open source. Um, and essentially what it is, is it is a it is the XFCE desktop on top of a stock Ubuntu install. And we have a repository that you can add. I'll have links in the show notes. It's called the Speed Kiosk. And what the, repos- the repository does, a couple of things. First of all, it provides the, uh, make sure that certain packages are installed. So you're going to have access to the the various web browsers and the office suite and stuff like that. But the other thing it does, does some security things. So it automatically removes any of the user configuration. So if somebody clicks, you know, tries to save a password or if somebody tries to screw up Firefox, or if somebody tries to import their own, you know, bookmarks or change the wallpaper, any of the stuff that people do on public machines gets blown away every time the machine is restarted. And, um, and so we maintain it and tip, and, and, and what we've done is we have deployed these for hotels and for conference centers for, uh, internet kiosks when people check in or when we've done them in airports where people have to print out their boarding pass and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and so it's based on Linux, obviously runs on Ubuntu. It's nothing particularly special, but it does lock down a lot of the features and restricts those to only the one who can, who holds the root password. Um, And obviously then the guest kiosk user is able to do all of the daily functional things but has no administrative control whatsoever in the computer. In fact, everything they do is not persistent. It exists inside of a RAM disk and is just forgotten. It goes poof every time the machine reboots.
2: Okay. Does it work with a specific payment processor?
1: Um, If you want – so the the way it's designed, right, is you can set it up for – any number of things so uh, we've done everything from here's a kiosk that people just want to browse the internet and open documents and check email all the way to here is a disclaimer that you had they they have it was a pool disclaimer so they had to fill out the pool disclaimer they had to accept the the terms of service and then it the page would refresh Uh, and you can customize it to display whatever it is you want so if, if so for example if you wanted to collect a payment um I would suggest he tie it in with something like Stripe. And so Stripe would be the back end payment processor. You'd write a simple uh you'd write a simple little PHP front end that basically says enter your credit card information, enter the name, enter the, the the password, this that and the other, uh, and and then it would talk to Stripe Stripe would do all of the processing. Obviously we want to hand off all of the all of the processing and security and PCI compliance, and as much of that as possible, we want to hand off to people that spend their day focusing on security. All we have to worry about doing is implementing a proper HTTPS solution to uh, send that payment over to Stripe through their API key. Uh, and once you have that, you can, you'd be able to process payments with it, no problem.
2: Okay, now, would it work with a card reader?
1: Yes, uh, the magnet, the way that magnetic card readers work is they uh, so both uh, one channel and two channel uh, credit cards or magnetic stripes will. Input data as uh, they it, it it will appear to Linux as a HID keyboard device, so it is essentially like plugging in a number pad and having a robot type the magnetic numbers. Where you're going to run into problems right. is if you want to start processing chip cards, if you want chip and pin, that gets a little more complicated because the way that the specification for the chip and pin uh, uh appliance is, it has to talk directly. To the payment processor. Now, that's both good news and bad news. The good news about that is, uh, typically, if you buy like a, a credit card reader from Ingenico, um, which is a typical manufacturer of uh, of a card reader that's going to support the chip card, their API inside of that card reader is going to directly talk to the payment processor, so the computer then becomes irrelevant. The bad news about that is, unless you have experience tying Ingenico equipment into a given you know, if like, let's say you want a page and they have to fill out their name and address and they have to select which product they want and all of that. And then they click pay and then it does a handoff to the credit card reader. If you want that stuff to work, you're going to have to hire a developer um, to write some of those things. Now, we have implemented some of those solutions. And if it were if we were writing the how do I phrase this? If we have implemented those solutions and if it was our idea or we were funding the project all of that code would be available on our, our 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 gitlab and i would just point you to it and say here here you go unfortunately um we were doing it for a a client they own the rights to that software because they paid us to develop it for them uh, what i can tell you is that it was it, it was a lot of work and it was a lot of money um to write a system that was able that was capable of working with the chip and pin and so um what a lot of smaller merchants are doing is going to something like a like a square reader or something like that where it's just a contained unit and goes into a built-in commodity tablet and that's your cheapest straightforward way to to getting a you know a, a payment processor but if you can deal without chip and pin if you can deal with people either entering their credit card manually or swiping it um then you can absolutely use stripe and we do
2: okay uh got time for one more i sure do yeah absolutely um okay so basically the 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 kiosk this is picture it's you know like a halloween haunted house thing where Mm -hmm. people go up and buy their tickets um so say people are going to go through in batches you know 10 people at a time uh do do you know of any ticketing software that can that can do that they can manage the groups that can say like you know hey you know groups 10 through 20 it's your turn
1: i don't but uh, to be honest with you that kind of thing sounds like it would be fairly trivial to put together right essentially what you're doing is you're st- every time somebody submits a registration that goes into a, you know like an sql lite database or a mara database and after so many counts then that group is filled and you move on to the other maybe you statically define you know whatever uh, a, a number of groups that you know you couldn't overfill like maybe 50 groups right uh, and then each time you hit 10 or however many people you want in that group it dumps out and says okay now this one is ready to go and then maybe even spits out a time then says uh here is the, here is the time when you, when your group is going to depart. Now, every developer that's listening, the show is going to laugh at me because maybe that's a terrible way to do it. I don't know. I pay developers to, to, to do those kinds of things for me. But what, what I can tell you having done a number of projects is that doesn't sound like that would be very complicated. Your again, chip and pin is going to be a far more complicated problem to solve the actual registration or the actual, um, you know, group ticketing thing that would be fairly, fairly open. What I would do if I woke up in your shoes, uh, I, I think what I would do, Joey, is I would reach out to Linux Fest Northwest. I would reach out to Southeast Linux Fest and I would reach out to Scale because they have registration systems that do specifically that. Now, it doesn't necessarily group people together, but it, well, to a certain degree it does because depending on what organization they're from, it will print that out on the badge. And I would, I bet you dollars to donuts, the code for at least one of those three, if not all three systems, is open source and you could just take it whole log and use it.
2: Yeah, that's what I was looking at was, you know, room management systems because it's mm-hmm. kind of the same workflow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, awesome. I, that's, what I was, that, that's kind of what I figured. Uh, I just didn't want to reinvent the wheel if there was already something that did it. So Absolutely. Okay. Thanks.
1: Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Oh, man. We got, a, we got full phones this hour. Uh, good afternoon. You're on the air.
3: Hi Noah, this is Casey. I was just wondering, whether is there any benefit for having Nextcloud like, let's say, a uh, digital edition droplet versus having it hosted at home and then using WireGuard uh, for, uh, to transfer to the VPN? Mm-hmm. Is it any more secure or is it even more of a headache to do it the other way?
1: It's both. Um, so on the pro side, anytime you're in DigitalOcean, keep in mind DigitalOcean is responsible for the maintenance of the hardware and they have protocols in place to swap hardware after it's been in production for so long. They're swapping the hard drives or the SSDs after they've been in production for so long. When a hardware fails, they have live migration services that will move it over to a new virtual host. You get an email, they say, hey, something went down, we moved it over, your server's back up and running. So there's a lot, lot, lot less headache on your end. You don't have to worry about the uptime, you just have to worry about keeping your credit card up to date. DigitalOcean takes care of the rest, right? They'll also, you can take advantage of things like snapshotting, you can take advantage of their backup service, you can take advantage of moving in from one server to the other, replicating a given server from one data center to the other. All of those features come, uh, you know, at a cost premium because you're paying per month, but you do get value for that money. And it's why we choose to host a lot of our services on DigitalOcean. Now, the downside to that, as you correctly pointed out, you're right. You are sharing a physical device with other people. And so depending on how private or not private your data is, obviously other people May find their way into it. Now it's not likely, and obviously, a properly patched server should not. You know, th- those sort of vulnerabilities won't exist. It shouldn't exist. But uh, but we have seen things like Heartbleed, right, where people can't, where where there are exploits to get access to memory, and and so as we continue to v- venture into virtual hosting and and hypervisors and and things like that. We're learning about some of the massive security ramifications Um, Intel, it seems like every few months has a new one that pops up. So, yeah, I would say there is a you do take a hit in my book anyway, from the security standpoint, anytime you're you're sharing a resource with somebody else. So, in, in my opinion, the most secure way is a. Is a um, air gapped server. So it it does not connect it to a network at all. It's in its, or it's, if it is connected to a network, it's its own closed network with no connection to the internet whatsoever. Uh, Second from that would be a server that sits inside of your home. It's maybe on your network that has a connection to the internet, but there are no ports that are forwarded. Um, It's just, it it exists inside your LAN. After that, from a security standpoint, I would tell you that anytime you have a VPN, uh, connection in, so there's only one way into the network. Granted, whatever vulnerabilities exist with that VPN solution, you're going to be subjected to, but uh, you only have to worry about securing one entrance path. Everything else sits nicely behind a firewall and is, for, is as long as you keep your router up to date, most of the time secure. And then after that would be opening the server up to the internet directly, you know, passing ports directly through your firewall, which a lot of people do with NextCloud. And it's designed to be done that way. And there's nothing wrong with doing it that way. But it is less secure than having it completely secured behind your firewall. And then finally would be opening it up to the public internet, giving your server a public IP address right on the wire and and and, and opening it up to the world. And that's what you would get if you were to do a, a, a ocean server.
3: That sounds good. Yeah, mostly on my uh, my next cloud instance, I usually keep just my calendars, and I uh, usually use it for a syncing uh, uh, photos, and it's mm-hmm. usually from home, it, it gets, it gets uh, R synced over from the um, from the next cloud over to a home uh, drive and then removed immediately. But
2: mm-hmm.
3: I just wanted to see if it was just better to keep it all in-house or, or just... For the minimal, uh, minimal headache, keep it on a droplet for a little bit and then go from there.
1: I've done it both ways, um, Any anything that, I, anything that I would be upset if it got leaked to the internet, it just simply won't go onto a computer that, is, uh, that, is, that isn't in front of a firewall, hands down, no exceptions. Uh, anything like pictures of my kids that I would prefer not to get onto the internet, but at the end, it's not going to kill anybody, it's not going to hurt anybody, it's just, you know, it's a mild preference. Those kinds of things are the things that I have no problem syncing over, uh, syncing over C-File and having that live on the internet or uh, NextCloud or OwnCloud. Mm -hmm. all right well thank you yeah i appreciate the call 855-450-NOAH that's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com uh good afternoon you're on the air that's you 8585 going once going twice thanks for the call give us a call back uh, 855-450-NOAH. That's one The email live at asnoahshow.com So going along with data privacy, again, this is going to be a cool episode. If we get through half of this, I'll be, I'll be excited. I set out to solve a problem and here was my problem. My problem was data on the go data on the fly. I wanted a device that I could trust that supported encryption. And I could trust was going to be private and secure. And primarily I wanted to use it offline. And so I tried a number of different approaches, right? First, I started looking at just a uh, digital notepads. Is there some sort of digital notepad, some way that I can just write things down, brainstorm, collect thoughts, and I don't have to worry about the security of said notes. It could be client information. It could be personal information. It could be, you know, any sort of information that I really don't want on the internet. um, Could I do that with a digital notebook? Come to find out it, no, not really. All of the digital notebooks are really designed to sync to Android, and they're pretty terrible. Again, 855 450 Noah. That's one 450 You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Do we have you now? Might be having some phone issues. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to keep doing this to you, but uh, I guess maybe try from a different phone. I, we, we can't hear you. Um, So I started to look for a device that I could trust, and I came across, uh, obviously I played with Ubuntu Phone, obviously I played with uh, Lineage OS, I tried a bunch of different devices, those are primarily designed to replace Android, they're primarily designed to be a open source-ish replacement for Android, and a lot of them to be useful, you end up having to pull back in Google services and or install an alternative to Google services, Um, that, you know, it keeps the device up to date, but at the end of the day, it's really designed to be another smartphone, something that's connected to the internet 24 seven. That's really not what I was looking for. And then I came across Yala and selfish OS. And the first thing that stood out to me was the fact that there's such a important stress on Linux. And the fact that all of the people that seem to use it cared and respected Linux and wanted to participate in the Linux ecosystem. Now, I want to stop here and just clarify something. You have to decide. You have to decide when you go to pick out a smartphone what path you're going to take. And right now, I think there's a very firm why in the road. There's a very firm fork, and there are only one of two paths to go down. And I firmly believe this. The first path is that of popularity an internet connected device running a mainstream platform or just short of a mainstream platform like lineage, which runs all the native APKs and you participate in the smartphone world. You download the app that they tell you to app. You give it the permissions that they tell you to give it. You connect it to the internet. When they tell you to connect it to the internet, you sync where they tell you to sync, but everything is running on the internet. You have to choose. If you want to go down that road, your, your alternative is you go down a different road. And the different road is you start treating the smartphone, you start treating a small portable computer for what it is, a small portable computer. And you start treating it like a laptop that's seven inches long and fits inside of your pocket. And I made a choice this week. And my choice was to start treating a smartphone like a mini laptop. And it turns out there's an operating system for that. And that operating system, you guessed it, is Sailfish OS. All right, let's try this one more time. It's 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Do we have you? Hello? I'm sorry, man. I still can't. We still can't hear you. I am so sorry. I feel so bad. You tried so hard. You called three different times, but I, I, we have no audio from him. So I started to research what I was going to do with Sailfish OS, and I came across the Sony Open devices. Now you can find more developer.sony.com slash develop slash open dash devices. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Now the Sony Open Devices Project is an open source project designed with to produce devices with configurations that are available on GitHub. That means that the software is going to be available open to you as a developer and you can use and contribute to it. It's also a way for you to, for Sony to support the Android community and they provide all of the tools necessary for contributing to AOSP or Android Open open-source project. This is massive, and I can't believe I have not come across this before. Sony makes an entire line of mobile phones specifically designed to load alternative roms on it why isn't anybody talking about this it's such a cool thing so i started to say to myself self there's no way this can be as great as they're making it out to be right it's probably going to be some handicapped crappy hardware that's going to run you know like like uh you remember everybody that's ever experimented with inexpensive android phones has come across at one point in their life or other A blue phone, BLU, right? They're the cheapest, most piece of junk phone in the world. They're only Android because of the way that it boots up. Everything after that is almost unusable, right? Maybe you can get it to run Telegram. The vast majority of them are junk. And uh, there's some higher-end blue phones that work okay. But for the most part, it's a budget crappy phone, okay? The Sony Xperia line is anything but a budget phone. It is absolutely an awesome, awesome, awesome phone. And I picked up on eBay for about 180 bucks the Sony Xperia XA2 Ultra. Now, the Sony XP, uh, Xperia XA2 Ultra has a 6-inch screen. It features a 1080 by 1920p display, which is great because I have bad eyes. So that really sharp display is awesome. The Snapdragon 630 processor, 4 gigabytes of RAM, 32 gigs of onboard storage. But it also supports up to a 256-gigabyte SD card. They go to removable memory, and that right there is so great because I can load basically a mini hard drive into what I'm calling my 7-inch laptop. And, of course, it has Type-C charging, so that means that it works with all of my Type-C accessories. Noah's in heaven, okay? The first thing I noticed with this device after I got Sailfish OS loaded on it, the battery life is insane. in I have played with Lineage OS. I thought that was good. Let me give you an example. I unplugged at 7 a.m. this morning when I left for work, and it is now uh, it's now 6:25 local time. My battery, 93 percent. I've lost seven percent the entire day, and that's not the phone is off, sitting over in a corner. That's I was using it as a music player. I'm using it as a task list all day. I prepped my entire show on it. This is. Awesome. I mean, it is unbelievable the amount of battery life that I'm getting uh off of this device. So I set down set about the path of, of obtaining a phone and obtaining Sailfish OS. And the first thing that you have to know if you're going to go down this road is that they don't officially support the US market. Now that doesn't mean that you can't perfectly use it within the US market. It works just fine, but it does mean you gotta jump through a couple of hoops. What do I mean by hoops? First of all, Selfish OS is not technically free. It's open source, so I'm sure there's a way to go about the process of getting the source code and then you could recompile it yourself and all that. But if you just want the easy way, you spend 50 bucks and you purchase a license. The problem is if you go to Yala.com and shop at and try to purchase a Sailfish license, it will, you'll get a message. Hey, we see that you're in the United States. We don't sell to people in the United States. Sorry. So the way around that is to go over to ask scroll to the very bottom of the page and use our affiliate link to sign up for a service called private internet access. If you sign up for that, they'll give you an EU exit point and you're able to purchase the selfish OS for, uh, for like 50 bucks or something like that. Now the private internet access, just a side rant, awesome service. The one of the only companies out there that has a proven track history of going to court and saying, listen. We don't keep logs. Well, uh, we need logs. I'm sorry, we don't keep logs. Well, could we just look? Absolutely, go look, but we don't keep logs. And they've, uh, time and time again, have gone to court and have been able to defend the fact that they don't keep logs. So you should have private internet access anyway because it's a great deal. It just cost a couple bucks. It's like the cost of a pizza. Uh, And and for that, you can protect your privacy. So if you need a, or are interested in a VPN, that's a great solution on its own. It allowed me to purchase Sailfish OS. So, the first thing I noticed, the, the install instructions from Yala, absolutely insane. When I tried to install a, a couple of various different ROMs on previous Android devices, it would say generic things like unlock your bootloader and reboot into ADB and then issue the necessary commands to blah, 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 right? Not with Sailfish. They give you a PDF, and it is literally monkey see, monkey do. My 70-year-old mother could have done this, right? Plug the phone into the cable. Hold the volume button up until the blue light starts flashing. Wait uh, a couple of minutes and type this into your Linux terminal. And it it, like step by step. It's one of the only how to's I've ever seen produced by a company that I could follow exactly what they said to do. And before I knew it, I just looked down and all of a sudden Sailfish OS is booting. I mean, it it was so smooth and so easy. I I can't even begin to describe compared to all of the other things I've had trouble with trying to sideload ROMs and sideload operating systems and all this stuff. Now, part of that is the Sony Xperia XA2 open device, right? Because you go to Sony's website, you put in the, uh, the or IMEI number, it spits out an unlock code, you type that unlock code in, it says, hey, if you do this, you're going to avoid your warranty, you click, I don't care, and it's, all right, now everything is unlocked, and you have full access to the device, and Sony provides all of the software, all of the files, all of the, everything you need is provided by Sony, which is great. Hands down, fantastic job, Sony, for making this device. And hands down to Yala for the fantastic, easy-to-follow, super-simple instructions. They have a list of devices, so you can go. I bought mine off of eBay. It was about 180 bucks. I think new. They're about 350 I heard there's a rumor on the Sailfish OS forms, which we'll get to in a minute. There's a rumor on the forums that the XA10, which is uh, which has just been released and it's available, you know, you can go into Best Buy and purchase it. That's going to become a supported device very, very soon. In fact, there's it's unofficially it is supported, like you can get the ROMs and install it yourself. But officially, it, it hasn't it hasn't become uh, supported yet. And I, I just I don't have enough good things to say about Sony for doing this because it fundamentally makes stuff like this possible. I mean, I'm tempted to go buy all of my stuff from Sony Open Devices now just because of this. 855-450-NOAA, that's 855-450-6624. You're on Noah. Good afternoon. Oops, that's my bad. i got to click doing? the button. Hey, how's it going?
4: Hi, how are you doing? Pretty good. Um, was wondering if you have a trunking provider for a SIP system as well as a suggestion for a SIP server that would not only handle phone calls but also sms and mms.
1: Hmm. Well, there is a because sms plugin for free pbx. I've not used it, but it it, it exists.
4: Yeah, I I looked at free pbx. Um, 3cx seems to support it, but they're out because once I set up the server I'm planning on rebuilding it daily from a script. Oh, okay. So I can't go through the authorization over and over oh, sure. for 3CX. Um and I did find one provider that does SMS and MMS as well as the um VoIP trunking. Um but my issue is is I'm having trouble finding a server, um, you know, a PBX that will handle all of that. Um I would like it to be sort of a one to one drop in on the phone. <laughs> sure. But I, are you aware of anything like that beyond 3CX?
1: I, I so here's the thing. I I like I have this pa- this passionate hate for SMS. Like I can't even begin to explain because it's such an outdated technology. And I get that the rest of the world uses it. So I I understand in the odd man out. I tell you yeah. what I'll tell you what I would do if I woke up in your shoes. I would give a company called Vox Telesis a call. I'll have a link for them in their sh- okay. in the show notes they have an entire write-up on how business can use SMS to effectively uh, communicate with their customers and one of the things that, and one of the reasons that oh, okay. we we choose to work with uh, Vox Telesis exclusively is because they are true open source stewards everything that run everything they use runs on open source software everything they use runs on Linux okay. Um, and so they uh, it, it, they are going to be the ones that have set this up for other people. And I, I, I can tell you what I've seen, but I don't feel like that's really taking your question. With the level of seriousness that, that you probably, that you probably need to be able to make an effective decision for your business. And the folks at Voxtelesis are going to be able to do that for you because they deal with this day in and day out. So I'll have a link to the, to their rundown on, on effective SMS management and the, the SMS solutions that they provide. Uh, they have a special deal worked out. So you can go to voxtelesis.com. Uh, slash ask Noah. And what they're going to do is they're going to give you a they're going to waive the tw- they're going to give you $25 credit towards any one of their plans. They're also going to waive any of the setup fees so you can basically try them for a couple of months and see if it works out. If it doesn't work out, you can go somewhere else. If it does work out, you can thank them for supporting the Ask Noah show.
4: Okay, that's fantastic. Yeah, you and I both. I hate SMS and MMS as well. <laughs> the problem is, is that I gotta support it. because I know. That's what everybody else uses. I know. It's like email, it's the lowest common denominator.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it really is. In fact, I, I tell you what. We we had a meeting this morning um, with my production staff, and one of the things that we're we're very much considering doing, much to my chagrin, is uh, we're 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 very we're cl- like we're very close to rolling out SMS for Ask Noah. So you'd be able to text into the line and ask questions that way. And I just, I, I hate it with every fiber of my being, but like you say, there are so many people that find it convenient and an easy way to interact. And if, if you want to communicate with customers and in my case, listeners, you have to do it. And so uh, we got to play that game.
4: Yeah. And that's, and that's exactly the problem I'm running into is I got to have something that supports the SMS and the MMS and, I just, I can't find something where I can spin the server up and pay a trunking provider and, you know, it's, <laughs> um, a uh, suggestion for your previous caller had been asking about hosting either on-prem or in the cloud. Yes. Um, one of the things you might think about doing is there's sort of a hybrid option I didn't hear you mention, is he could set up his next cloud instance in the cloud and then use DigitalOcean's private networking to then network to a separate server, mm. which is his WireGuard endpoint. Oh, that's a great he would idea.' Then take it off the internet, but it would give him the you know the uptime of DigitalOcean mm-hmm. not having to rely on his own hardware. He'd still get all the benefits of the cloud without truly quite being on the cloud yeah the only
1: so, the only the only the th- th- I, I agree with that ninety nine percent the only thing I would say is you're still on a shared piece of metal right and and a shared piece of metal yes. is still not as secure as having your own piece of metal, um, but you're right, it's a heck of a lot better no, than just absolutely. being open and exposed to the internet.
4: Yeah, um, and the other thing it does is it you know not being open and exposed to the internet, it cuts out some of the mass spamming of just port scans and everything else. So that you know would be a help from just a bandwidth perspective. Mm-hmm. The other thing you could look at too is putting one of DigitalOcean's firewalls in front of it, um, on top of a firewall on his actual server. So oh, okay, I'd, that'd be another solution. See this? As
1: well. This I got to dig more into some of the the some of the features of DigitalOcean. I didn't even know they had firewalls.
4: Yeah, they've got um they actually have uh floating IPs. They, they pretty much as far as I can tell, um, they pretty much are one to one with Amazon. Um, I think the only thing they don't have off top of my head would be a Kubernetes offering. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they roll that out before too long. Awesome. Well I appreciate the call. Yeah, um I had one other question for you as mm-hmm. well. Um as far as, um, because I'm kind of in the same boat with him, um, I, I've ran my own stuff on-prem for a long time. I've always set it up where I VPN into my network. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be setting up some servers for an organization, and um, it's an organization I volunteer with, actually, um, and are there any common gotchas? Um, beyond making sure you've got the firewall in place, make sure you've got something like fail to ban. Are there any other common things that somebody may not think about when setting something up directly on the Internet?
1: Um, oh man, that's a loaded question. Um, the short answer is yes. The long answer is absolutely. Um, so what, what I would tell you is this. The, f- the, the first thing you want to do is you want to identify all of the entrance points to your network, right? So if you're going to have, you know, the, yeah. I, I, a lot of people, they're lazy. And so what they do is they just end up punching holes in the firewall and, and port 22 goes over to that server and port 6551 goes over to that server and 8080 goes over to this server. And it just, it's just the whole firewall is riddled with holes that, that penetrate right through your network right the proper way to do that as i as i explained to that other caller is to set up a vpn solution and then maintain that one access directly into the, your network if you find yourself at a point where you have for whatever reason and they do exist where you have to start opening services up directly to the internet um you know c file for example i don't know how you're going to do that on on a, i mean unless you're going to carry a vpn solution with you everywhere and everywhere you connect uh ton of local traffic back to your home which you could do i guess but uh, unless you're going to do something like that when you when you get to a point where you have to start opening stuff up to the internet what i would suggest you do if your isp supports it take the cable modem run it into a switch then from your switch run into the directly into the server and then again from the switch run into your router for the rest of your network so that and 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 so what that does is it puts your if the modem be. The modem becomes NAT and provides a DHCP
4: address to both routers. Well, uh, no, no,
1: no, no, there, no, no. There, no. The, the 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 modem, if it's configured properly, should issue a public IP address. It, it, the the mo You don't want the modem doing the firewall and and routing because, frankly, I don't necessarily trust the firmware on whatever you know, whatever uh, a no name router your cable uh, modem I provides.
4: Yeah, yeah. well, to, to just to kind of cut you off there a little, these I'm actually, these aren't going to be hosted on my infrastructure. These are going okay. to be up on D, a DO. Okay. Um, and so as far as putting a server up on DO, one of the services that it, uh, we're looking at hosting is NextCloud, mm-hmm. and then we're also looking at hosting um, possibly the OSEM that runs NewsCon. Okay. Sure. Because this is actually a convention, uh, open source convention that I volunteer with. Very cool. Um, and right now, they're using proprietary software that I'm not thrilled with. Um, and they aren't thrilled with either. It's not really filling their needs, and they're excited to switch over, but I need to get it up and running so they can kind of play with it and test it and etc. Mm-hmm. So those are going to be going up on D.O., and as far as beyond having firewalls on those as well as something like fail-to-ban, locking down ports
1: and all that fun jazz. What uh, so aside um, so anything aside from that once you get that 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 mostly covers the security obviously staying up to date with software and patches and stuff like that. Once you get past that the next oh, thing yeah, I, the next thing I would start to do is I would tell you to start worrying about backups, having things that offload from DO and not just using their backup service, but having that data on on a totally separate device, either a totally separate VPS or I prefer it at somewhere at my house on a, on an actual physical hard drive. Um, But I would tell you to start backing up uh, the data that's on there. So if something catastrophic happens to Do, and I've seen it happen, um, we actually we host a server for the Lamontu guys, and we had a problem and we lost data. Uh, So I I would suggest I would suggest data backup after you've gotten through the security aspect. Yeah,
4: my plan with that had been to actually set it up on a nightly routine Mm -hmm. that automatically um, basically spins the server down, does a snapshot runs all the updates, brings it up, and then have a separate server that can ping it, run a few checks to make sure it came up okay, and then let it go again.
1: Sure. but um, You shouldn't even need to necessarily power it off for a snapshot. But
4: Well, yeah, but um, I actually want to take and do not only just a snapshot, I want to do um, weekly full disk images and have those saved off and um, all that. So. Well, I think you're going
1: about it the right I, way, my I, friend.
4: Okay, I just it's my first time hosting things in the cloud and especially for somebody else and it's mm-hmm. making me a little nervous. So sure. having somebody who does it for a living makes me feel a little better that, you know, they're not, you know you're not saying, "Oh yeah, you dunce, you forgot <laughs> this one thing."
1: Yeah. No, I I'd say you're on the I'd say you're on the right path.
4: Okay. I just want to say thank you for all you, all you do for the community. You're a real asset and I I don't think the everyone quite realizes how much you do off air to support the things you do on air.
1: That means more to me than you'll ever truly know, my friend. Thanks for the call.
4: Yeah. Um, I've actually, I've been listening to the JB stuff as well as you um, all the way back to the Matt Hartley days of last uh, wow. uh, laughs
1: very cool well we appreciate well, your support yeah. and I, I thank for the call today 855-450-NOAH that's 855-450-6624 the email live at com. so i get into sailfish os and this is by far the best ui i have ever used on a mobile operating system i would describe it to you if you've not used it before as a cross between web os and ios the their the level of integration And the level of attention to detail is second to none. So one of the things that they've done that I noticed right off the bat that I really appreciate is they designed this operating system from the ground up for people who want administrative control over the device. Multiple, multiple times throughout the week, I would forget that I was on a phone because it feels like I have a desktop in my pocket. Why? Because I literally have a desktop in my pocket. That's what's so cool about Sailfish OS. When you boot up, you look at the file directory. It's a home structure. I instantly noticed that I have my downloads, my documents, my pictures, everything under slash home slash Nemo is the username that's created by default. And I was like, oh, I have a home directory. That's really cool. Well, here's what's interesting. Because it's actual Linux, you can solve problems using traditional Linux workflows. The first problem I came across on Sailfish OS, I later found out there's a better solution. But the first problem I came across on Sailfish OS was if you encrypt the SD card, which I did with Lux, because it's basically uncrackable, I had... Despite what I knew about a Lux password, we sent it into a data recovery firm, and they still weren't able to crack the password on Lux. So, And that way, I was able to tell them how many characters it was, and I was able to tell them a little bit about the password, and they still weren't able to get into it. So I feel pretty confident in saying that Lux is fairly secure. If you encrypt an SD card with Lux, the indexer won't index it for the music system. Because at the time that the phone starts up, it can't actually read the SD card. You have to go into the storage system and unlock the SD card. Um, and so what I did was I created a symlink inside of the, the, the directory that, it, that Sailfish OS is already watching back to my SD card. And that brought all my music. In. And I later found out there's actually a command you can run to force it to, uh, <laughs> to, to run the, uh, the update, uh, the index service, which doesn't surprise me at all. I go to copy music onto the phone and I'm like, I'm going to have to install some software. I'm going to have to take the SD card out. And and all of a sudden, I'm Googling around and somebody goes, I just use rsync. And I went, rsync on my. Hey, rsync and SSH is built right into this thing because it's Linux. They give you administrative access right to the device. Devil SU. You go in there, you enable the device, and you can elevate to rep privileges. You have full access to the file system. All the apps that are running run inside of your face. And the UI, again, second to none. It's designed for people who want to own the phone, right? Every time you open an app, you have two options. Well, three, really. The first option is to close the app. And to do that, you swipe down just like you would if it was a computer and there was a little X in the corner. And because it's gesture-based, it's a swipe. So you swipe down the far right corner and it kills the app. Your second option is to swipe to the left from anywhere on the screen, and that minimizes the app. So the app is still running, and if you go to your home screen, you see an outline of the app, and so you can see all of the apps that are running in the background. Now, every one of you who have Android or iOS, if I were to ask you right now how many apps are running, how long would it take you to figure it out? How long would it take you to go into whatever setting or whatever utility that you use to figure out how many apps are running? I push my power button Swipe my fingerprint and the, and the next thing I'm looking at is how many apps are running on my phone. So there is nothing that eats up memory that I'm not aware of. Because again, Sailfish OS is designed to be a geek's phone. We like to know what things are running. And when something is running poorly, we like to be able to kill it. And the ability to do that is awesome. And yes, Nunix, PSAUX works inside of Sailfish OS. It's absolutely fantastic. But I don't even need to use it because it's just right there on my screen. I also have large hands, and so it makes it very difficult for me to use, excuse me, I don't have large hands, and so it makes it very difficult for me to use larger phones. It's one of the reasons I have always stuck with 5-inch or smaller phones, because even on my 5-inch phone, I can reach maybe about the lower half of the screen. To get up to the top half of the screen, I basically have to shuffle the phone in my hand, and it makes it very, very unusable in one hand. Well, guess what? Selfish OS solves that because you can grab anywhere on the screen and all of the menus exist. And this is going to be hard to explain via audio, but tr- trust me when I tell you the menus exist either above the phone or below the phone. So you have the viewable area. If you pull down the entire UI of the phone slides down and reveals a menu. The Options there is a there is a selector bar that's in the center and depending on how far down you drag the screen or how far up you drag the screen highlights one of those options either above or below the the screen if you let go it selects that option which means I can access the menu from anywhere on the screen with any hand brilliant design just brilliant design that pull menu from anywhere. Absolutely fantastic. Now, I said that you can swipe from the right to the left to minimize applications. The other thing that does is takes you back to the home screen so that you can easily switch between two running applications. So guess what I do all the time? I switch from a terminal over to a web browser. I switch from a notes over from a web browser. On Android, on iOS, on basically any other uh, mobile operating system. I have found multitasking to be abysmal with Sailfish OS. Swipe, tap, swipe, tap, swipe, tap, swipe, tap, and again because I can use these gestures from anywhere on the screen, I can do it with one hand. Then I go- went into the settings and I said, okay, well, what cloud-connected devices are here that I'm going to have to disable? None. None. No cloud-connected services are tied to the stupid thing. Now they do offer a backup service if you want to sign up for it, but guess what? The default backup service is. <laughs> it creates a tar.gz of your home directory because all of your data and all of your apps and everything you use on the phone is in your home directory. So you manage it just like you would manage a Linux computer. And the backup is just a dated tar.gz. And you can rsync that thing off or you can uh, just leave it on the SD card and restore to a different phone exactly how you would expect a small little seven inch laptop to work. Then I got to the app ecosystem. Now, remember, when I bought this device, the only thing I wanted was to be able to to, to write notes. I wanted an encrypted Lux device. I had really no intention of using this thing on the Internet. Well, guess what? The official store is awesome, and the apps are awesome. But guess it gets even better. They support repos. If you don't like the default app store, you just add a repo, and now you have a whole nother swath of apps that are available. So I'm using the repo Stormon which I had with a single command, and uh, I have access to a bunch of third-party apps. Guess how I installed uh, StormOn? Uh, they have, to to add the repository, obviously can do it with a, with a um, you know, from the command line, they give you an RPM and you just install the RPM. So they package things as RPM and you can install those things on Sailfish OS. My mind continued to be blown as I'm driving through this thing. I'm like, I can use RPMs on my phone. This is awesome. So then I open up the app store and I start looking through all of these apps. One of the things you notice is first, every app that's open source, and not all of them are, but the vast majority of them are, have a link to the GitHub page so you can get direct access to the source code, follow the development, all of those things. The other thing it does last updated big uh, the two things it gives you the link to the source code and the time that it was last updated so you can see those developers that kind of drove by wrote an app and then haven't touched it for five years it's pretty obvious which ones are there and it by default will sort them so only the newest ones rise to the top fantastic idea right much better designed apps way better designed apps every app on on android or ios Looks however the, the, the app designer wanted it to look. Well, guess what? With Sailfish OS, it's designed for simplicity in mind while mobile. It adapts to a keyboard well, but it's designed to function on touchscreen device because they have realized what everybody else should realize, which is convergence is a joke. So it forces a standard UI on all of the apps. You choose what they call an ambiance and the ambiance is your background as well as a color, which you want to kind of hue all of the of the entire user interface. And so I chose a bluish purple for my ambiance color. So all of my apps have that kind of hue and all the apps are just semi translucent, just enough that you can kind of see the background. So every application, no matter if it's a third party application or published by y'all of themselves, All look exactly the same. And all the menus are in the same place because they're using this pull-down menu. Everything looks uniform. I cannot believe that this company that doesn't even sell phones in the U.S. can design such a superior interface to Android and iOS. And I'll throw Lineage and every other mobile operating system I have ever used to include my beloved webOS. Now, here's the great, (laughs) one of the other great things. I kind of alluded to this earlier in the episode. When you become a selfish OS user, you just inherit a bunch of friends. By the way, to Nunix in the chat room, it's finished software. It's Yeah, that's a joke because, yeah, right. Obviously, there are security updates and stuff like that. You inherit a list of friends because everybody that uses Sailfish OS becomes extremely passionate about Sailfish OS, right? It's why I, I can't, I can't stop. To- I could devote five episodes. I won't, but I could devote five episodes just to talking about Sailfish OS and all of the amazing things I've been able to do with it and how happy I am and how much I wish this would take off in a very big way. So let's say you've, I've sold you. Uh, hey, I'm buying a Sailfish OS. I'm on the boat wagon. This is great. Couple of things. Okay. First, if it was bug free it would have already taken off. So there are some bugs. There are some things you have to work around. But there I would already, I would articulate that they are no more severe and no more inconvenient than a minor than a than a small Linux distro that's just starting up, right? Couple little things, couple little hairy edges here and there, but for the most part it works. If you're primarily using it as an offline device, you'll have no problems at all. Once you start to try to integrate in with other mobile things like apps and you want to sideload APKs, And you want to, uh, you know, maybe load the Google Play services. Once you start to do those kinds of things, that's where people start to run into trouble. And so I don't think that it is ready to replace Android or iOS in the traditional sense. But then again, I don't think any alternative operating system is truly ready to replace Android or iOS. You're always taking a compromise. However, is it fully ready? Prime time? Absolutely no disclaimers. Is it ready to become a small little seven inch computer that you can hold in your pocket and use it as a companion device to your phone or laptop? 100% it is. I, there are certain things. That I have moved exclusively from my laptop over to Sailfish OS. Anybody that has been around me for more than 15 minutes has, will tell you, oh, he takes his laptop everywhere. He's got the stupid little bag. And every time he goes out to eat or the grocery store or even the gas station, even the bathroom, he takes his laptop with him. Yes, I do. Because I'm a, I, I have to have access to my laptop. It is my life. I live on it. And what I've done this week, there are so many times I've left my laptop at home or in the car because I've got my seven inch laptop. I've got my little device. Right. And it has every it's got a full terminal app. I've got a little keyboard and I've got a little dock that I use that I'm able to set up and do all of my quote unquote desktop or laptop work on. Absolutely fantastic. So what are some of the apps that I think are the best? If you're going to follow uh My example, if you're going to go down this road, what app should you be looking at? Well, Foil Notes is an encrypted notes app. It ties in with the native notes app. uh, And so you just enter an additional password to decrypt your notes. Absolutely fantastic app. Obviously, the built in notes app, I use it all the time. It's very good. I like the tiled approach rather than the big long list. Task list. One of the best task lists I've ever seen. Add a task, delete a task. Create a new list for a task. And here's one of the best features. I've not seen this on many other task lists. Reset all tasks. I have created checklists for things that we do. When we go to install a access point or we go to install a camera system, there are certain tools and certain materials that we need. And I've created checklists or what we call pull lists, which used to be on paper. Uh, there were PDFs. And, and and so what we used to do is we'd go down with the PDF. We go, yep, we have that. We have the screwdrivers. We got the drills. We've got the cat five termination. we have All these things, right? I have created a uh, pull lists inside of the task list and I can just mark them off. And now we go do the job. And when I'm done with the job, I, I pull down the menu and say reset and it marks them all as undone. And then I can use it again. I can export or import those lists. So I don't, if I don't want all of them on loaded onto the phone, I can store them off site or in my home directory or our sync them up to my free NAS, whatever I want to do. It's absolutely awesome. Uh, Bible me. Uh, I use for my, for my nightly devotionals, the clock alarm function is uh what you would expect clock and alarm function, but I use it daily a fishmonger, a fantastic shopping app, just very straightforward to the point. Um, I, like I said, I use the Storman repo, Wi-Fi analyzer while I'm at work. The terminal app is fantastic. It's a full-on terminal app, supports all of the terminal functions that you would expect on a Linux computer. The file browser, full access to the file uh, browser. One of the things that I don't understand how people on iOS get around without having actual access to their file system. That seems crazy to me. Tiny Edit, a simple text editor. Uh, the Media Player, fantastic. The Voice Recorder, fantastic. Muppin64, Emulate Goldeneye. LLS Video Player, which is essentially their version of VLC. There's an IRC client, and uh, Quick Edit, which is a Reddit app. So my pro tips are this. I have tried multiple times to move over to a mobile uh, operating system, and it's failed because SSH didn't work, or my YubiKey didn't work, or Lux didn't work, or I plugged in a drive. I always hit a roadblock. Sailfish OS is the first time I've ever loaded an operating system onto a phone and said, this could legitimately replace my laptop. Are there bugs? Yes. Should you be prepared for a problem for your experience? No. But is it worth it? 100%. You can move or sync your files with rsync. Uh, you, you, you have access to the actual device. If it didn't have any bugs, everybody would be using this. The vast majority of people are not interested in the kind of device that Sailfish OS is. But if you want a privacy by default, privacy personal device... You have to check out. You have to check out Sailfish OS. If nothing else, go take a look at their website and and get a demo and kind of see how the UI works. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Mimics is in our interactive mumble room. I got about two minutes. What's uh, you're a Sailfish OS user? I understand. Hi, Noah. Long distance call from Switzerland. Hey, so in there. fact,
0: I am. In fact, I'm using a Nexus Five. So you have two possibilities. First of all. You have the licensed versions that you have bought for mm-hmm. the Sony Xperia versions. Mm-hmm. So, the best uh, thing is probably the XA2 versions, uh, the whole series. But there are a lot of open source versions available. So, the best ones for that would be the Nexus 5 and the OnePlus 1, probably. Okay. Fairphone 2, Fairphone 2 also. And in the future, probably the Fairphone 3, the PinePhone, and the Librem 5. And with all that, you can join the community and you can make this operating system really, really great. There's a lot of things to like. There there are some things we have to get better, mm-hmm. which, obviously, we are a small community, but I think there's a lot of things that we can really, really do
1: Yeah, good, and, and you will love it. As I have. I, 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 I have. Yeah. I, I. I don't have enough good things to say about it. It's one of those. Th- I should mention, by the way, there are two versions of Sailfish OS. There are Sailfish OS three, which is the official version that is sold, and then there's Sailfish OS X, which is the. D- I love the way they describe this. Even download the operating system and then install it on whatever you want. And so instead of being a supported, like you just buy a phone with a pre-install, which Yalo does support, they made their own phones, um, Sailfish X is the download and you install it on your own device and then they have a list of supported devices. And I understand you're actually the maintainer uh, or one of the people that contribute to no, the no. Uh, Nexus, uh, Nexus 5 port, yeah? I'm not a maintainer. I'm part just of the community. Oh, I see. Uh,
0: if you want to join the community, go to talk.myemo.org. And there is a big forum with all the devices that are available for Selfish OS. And there you can have a lot of information how to port your device and all, how to install the Selfish OS on available devices. Awesome. It's really a good resource to, to get started with Selfish OS.
1: Hey, I really appreciate you joining us and adding your voice to the conversation. I also appreciate you being part of this amazing community. Like I said, it's great uh, to to just inherit a bunch of friends, sailors, as we call them in the Sailfish OS community. I really hope after listening to this episode that there's a couple of you out there that'll choose to join me on this path because I just don't have enough things to say about Sailfish OS. I just hope it starts to get a little bit more attention and uh, maybe we can fix some of these things. And someday I would really like to replace my Android phone with the Sailfish OS phone. That's it for this week. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Visit us at AskNotashow.com.